Ready to pop the question? The jewelers at BlueNile.com have got sparkle down to a science with beautiful lab-grown diamonds worthy of your most brilliant moments. Their lab-grown diamonds are independently graded and guaranteed identical to natural diamonds, and they're ready to ship to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Burrow is a furniture company known for timeless design and thoughtful construction, and free shipping, and that extends to their outdoor collection. Their outdoor furniture is built to withstand the elements, featuring rust-proof stainless steel hardware, weather-ready teak, and quick-dry foam cushions. For Memorial Day, get 15% off your Burrow purchase at burrow.com slash ACAST and up to 25% off outdoor. That's up to 25% off outdoor furniture at burrow.com slash ACAST. Even on a budget, quality is non-negotiable. That's why Quince is the place to score high-end essentials at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Get your hands on buttery soft cashmere sweaters from just 60 bucks, Italian leather jackets, and so much more. And the best part about Quince, they exclusively partner with factories committed to safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Elevate your style without the elevated price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com slash upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns. The surprising fall of the king of cons. He demands to be led into the meeting, and he starts attacking the guards. The original airborne espionage. As he was coming into land, he heard gunfire, and this guy falls right down on top of them. And a deadly missile mishap. It was as if the night sky had turned into day. Within the walls of great institutions lie secrets waiting to be revealed. These are the mysteries at the museum. The city of Jacksonville, Arkansas, was once a major supplier of fuses and detonators during World War II. And located in the headquarters of one of its former munitions plants is the Jacksonville Museum of Military History. The institution tells the story of the bravery of the armed forces and the horrors of combat, with artifacts including a jeep used in the Vietnam War and an iron obstacle that lined the beaches of Normandy. But for many residents in the region, one strange twisted object speaks to a terrifying incident that occurred not on any battlefield, but right here at home. It's a gray piece of metal with jagged edges, and it's about 50 years old. According to museum director Danica Duggar, it's a chilling reminder of an explosive event that nearly wiped out the entire state. Everyone in the area was absolutely terrified. It's a day that the people in the South will never forget. How is this scrap of metal linked to a catastrophic event that haunts Arkansas to this day? September 18, 1980, Van Buren County, Arkansas. Radio reporter Sid King is enjoying a quiet dinner when he receives a call with a hot news tip. Apparently, something was going on at the Titan II missile silo. Housed at an Air Force base and launch complex just north of the town of Damascus, the Titan II missile is among the world's most powerful long-range nuclear weapons. The Titan II was equipped with a 9-megaton warhead. 
It has an explosive force equivalent to all the bombs used during World War II, including the two atomic bombs. But it seems that all is not well at the launch complex. The Air Force had reported a fuel leak, but had talked about very little else. Suspecting that a major story is brewing, King races to the base. But when he arrives, Air Force officers order him to turn around. He questions the airmen about what's going on, but gets no information. And then is told to immediately evacuate the area. But the dogged reporter refuses to let a good story pass. So he plants himself down the road to keep a close eye on the site. Then, at around 3 a.m., King hears a massive explosion. It was suddenly as if the night sky had turned into day. The explosion forms this huge cloud of debris that is over the missile area. King watches in horror as shrapnel falls from the sky, pieces of which are now found at the Jacksonville Museum of Military History. He knows that if the nuclear warhead has detonated, the results will be catastrophic. King races to the station to report his first-hand account of the chaos. And in the midst of his emergency broadcast, he receives his most chilling news yet. King picks up from a caller who'd been listening to a scanner from the base that a nine megaton warhead has blown off the missile. And that's not the only disturbing turn of events. There had been reports of people mysteriously falling ill. Soon, authorities order over a thousand people within a five mile radius of the silo to evacuate. Some people thought it might be the end of the world. By daybreak, the emergency personnel and first responders comb the launch complex. It was a morning filled with devastation. The Titan II missile silo was completely decimated. The doors were actually blown off their hinges and landed about a quarter mile away. In the course of the accident, one airman does die and over 20 are injured. Yet after surveying the area, Air Force investigators find no signs of radiation. Then, hundreds of feet from the silo, they discover the Titan II warhead. And remarkably, it is intact. As the region's residents return to their homes, relieved but shaken from the experience, many are wondering, what caused this near-disastrous explosion? After a year of pressure from journalists like Sid King, the Air Force releases an official report. Its contents stun the local community. The report acknowledges that a routine maintenance project had gone horribly wrong. On September 18th, at about 6.30 p.m., while conducting a regular inspection of the missile, a repairman accidentally dropped a wrench socket 80 feet down into the silo shaft. It ricocheted down and bounced off the missile. When a team was lowered into the silo, they discovered the horrifying smell of poisonous fumes. It seems when the wrench socket fell, it hit and ruptured the missile's first stage fuel tank, leaking highly flammable fuel that could be set off in an instant. A simple spark could ignite the toxic fumes and cause a catastrophic fire. Hoping to dispel the gas, 
the team switched on the ventilation system before vacating the silo. But according to the report, this action likely produced the fatal spark that triggered the monstrous blast hours later. And today, this piece of shrapnel is preserved at the Jacksonville Museum of Military History as an eerie reminder of the near-tragic event that almost obliterated an entire state. Washington, D.C. In 1910, district commissioners passed an act limiting the height of most buildings to 130 feet, or about 13 stories. One such building is a much-revered repository, dedicated to man's quest to reach unimaginable heights. The Smithsonian National Air and Space Museum, spread out over 161,000 square feet, is a collection that includes the Wright Brothers' 1903 flyer, Charles Lindbergh's Spirit of St. Louis, and the command module from the 1969 Apollo 11 lunar landing. But one eye-opening object surveyed the skies back long before these historic flyers. It's sort of grayish with a strap to hang around the neck, and it was manufactured right around the time of the Civil War. According to Tom Crouch, this telescope device was wielded by a high-flying visionary. This was a man with a dream that was going to prove crucial to American military operations. Who viewed the world through these binoculars? And how did he take the art of espionage to unprecedented heights? April 1861, Cincinnati, Ohio. While the nation is embroiled in the Civil War, renowned hot air balloonist Thaddeus Lowe is doggedly pursuing a personal goal. He had come up with this dream of flying a balloon across the Atlantic. Other balloonists had talked about it too, but nobody had done it. On April 20th, the 28-year-old adventurer sets out on a test run to chart his transcontinental course. His balloon, the Enterprise, soon soars to towering heights. Lowe claimed that he had climbed to an altitude of over 20,000 feet, which is really pretty high. After several hours of flight, he calculates that the wind has carried him as far east as Washington, D.C., and he begins his descent. Yet while approaching the ground, something doesn't seem right. There were people down there who didn't look entirely friendly. And Lowe reports that as he was coming into land, he heard gunfire. And when the Enterprise touches down, Lowe is greeted by a band of heavily armed locals. And he soon discovers he's landed in South Carolina. South Carolina, of course, is where the war had begun and where enthusiasm for secession was highest. And this guy falls right down on top of them. The men suspect the northern intruder used his hot air balloon contraption to observe troop movements. They assumed he was a Union spy. Facing espionage charges, Lowe is in grave danger. Espionage is a crime traditionally associated with death sentences. Will the man who fell from the sky walk away with his life? Burrow is a furniture company known for timeless design and thoughtful construction and free shipping, and that extends to their outdoor collection. Their outdoor furniture is built to withstand the elements, featuring rust-proof stainless steel hardware, weather-ready teak, and quick-dry foam cushions. 
For Memorial Day, get 15% off your Burrow purchase at burrow.com slash ACAST and up to 25% off outdoor. That's up to 25% off outdoor furniture at burrow.com slash ACAST. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Hey there, it's Michelle Norris. I'm host of a podcast called Your Mama's Kitchen. When I travel, I'm usually looking for a way to find a taste of home when I'm not at home. And one of the things I love to do when I am at home is entertain. And Airbnb allows me to do that. When I was in California recently, I rented a house that had a great kitchen. And when we were sitting around the table, we're all thinking, we're in someone else's house. Someone could be in all of our homes as well. If you have a home, but you're not always at home, you have an Airbnb. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com style for free shipping and 365-day returns. It's 1861. In the midst of the Civil War, hot air balloonist Thaddeus Lowe accidentally drops down in South Carolina. The northerner is quickly arrested by locals who believe he's using his aerial contraption to spy on Confederate camps. So, will the lost explorer make it out alive? Lowe pleads that he's simply an explorer, but to no avail. But then, some local townspeople step forward, saying that they recognize the famous balloonist. He'd become a national figure, so they were able to vouch for him and convince the local authorities that he was not a spy. When he returns to Cincinnati, Lowe begins to ponder the very thing he was accused of. He had a notion that balloon reconnaissance would be useful to the government. 500 feet in the air, you can see where the enemy emplacements are, where the guns are. When news of his impressive idea travels up the chain of command, he's summoned to a meeting with none other than President Abraham Lincoln. Lincoln is intrigued. But how will a balloonist convey his observations to the generals on the ground? Lowe comes up with an ingenious solution. And on June 18th, he puts it to the test. On the National Mall, with the president watching on, Lowe boards a gondola equipped with a special device a telegraph. He thought it would really impress Lincoln to get a telegram from the air. Via a long wire connected to the ground, the clever balloonist dictates a message to the commander-in-chief, describing his view from 500 feet above the capital city. Not only is this a way to get a whole new view of what's going on out there, but this guy can communicate information real time. 
Lincoln is so impressed by the display that he creates the Union Army Balloon Corps and appoints Thaddeus Lowe as the chief aeronaut. And over the course of the Civil War, Lowe's fleet of balloons makes over 3,000 ascents. On many of those missions, he surveys the enemy's position and movements with these binoculars, now on display at the Smithsonian National Air and Space Museum. And today, the revolution launched by Thaddeus Lowe is one of the linchpins of American military might. They're doing the same thing that Lowe did with his balloons, but today we do it with satellites from space. And at the National Air and Space Museum, these binoculars live on as a testament to a man whose ingenuity opened up the skies like never before. The quiet town of Monroe, Connecticut, was incorporated in 1823 and named for the fifth president of the United States, James Monroe. But amidst this tranquil and historic community lies an unusual institution, the Warren Occult Museum. Its eerie collection includes the infamous Annabelle doll, which allegedly channeled demonic spirits, a skull used for blood-drinking rituals, and a witch's spike, once used in a human sacrifice to the devil. But there's one slightly damaged artifact, which at first glance looks reassuringly normal. The object is about seven inches high, six inches wide. It's made out of like a gun metal and it has charred marks all over it. But as psychic researcher Tony Spera explains, this fire-scarred item was involved in a horrifying case that disturbed an innocent family's inner sanctum. This object, though it looks harmless, actually is connected to one of the most terrifying and diabolical cases that we've encountered in a long, long time. What happened to this picture frame? And how is it linked to a shocking tale of seduction and a satanic spirit? March 3rd, 1974. It's a calm and quiet late winter morning in West Hartford, Connecticut, and 50-year-old Pete Beckford gets in his car to head to work. But it won't start. And when he takes a closer look at the engine, he is stunned. He opens the hood up, and he's looking at the thing saying... Something's wrong here. All the plug wires are pulled out of the car, and the fan belt's cut in half. And when Pete heads back to his house, he soon notices that something else is amiss. He discovers the back doorbell's ripped off. Pete is furious, but he chalks the damage up to the mischievous pranks of local high school kids. But as his wife and daughter Vicky soon experience, the Beckfords are not the victims of teenage vandalism. Radiator valves would just come off by themselves. Detergent bottles would uncap and fall over and spill all over the floor. And then there's a pounding sound. It'd be like somebody took a huge wrecking ball and was pounding it against the house as hard as they could. Unable to find a cause for the damage, the family spends weeks in a state of shock. Then, on March 31st, the Beckfords try to take their minds off of the mayhem by watching TV. Everything's kind of calm, and they're, they're feeling almost normal for a change. Then what happens? The power goes out. And as they huddle in fear, they notice something truly inexplicable. And these picture frames levitated from the wall, and then they would spontaneously combust. The picture frames, 
including this one on display at the Warren Occult Museum, burst into flames as the Beckfords look on in horror. The next day, a terrified Pete confides in his friend that his house must be haunted. He was very reluctant to tell this because, you know, if you listen to it, it sounds kind of crazy. But his friend says he knows of some people who may be able to help. Their names are Ed and Lorraine Warren. Ed and Lorraine Warren were noted ghost hunters. They investigated actually thousands of houses, thousands of people who've had a problem similar to Pete's. The Warrens asked the Beckfords a series of routine questions. And saying, you know, did you buy an antique? No. Someone passed away? No. Whatever he's asking, he's getting no answers. Finally, Ed hones in on a possible source of the haunting. He says, anybody here ever use a spirit board? And all of a sudden, Vicky says, oh, that. Yeah, I have. I've used it before. Vicky admits that one year earlier, she had begun experimenting with a spirit board. She made contact with an entity from beyond the veil, a spirit she believed to be that of a teenage boy. And even though she was shocked at first, she soon developed an affinity for this otherworldly being. She's telling him about herself. He's telling her about himself, exchanging, you know, intimacies. And after a while, it was almost like this teenage boy was like her boyfriend. With her fondness growing, Vicky finally asked her spirit boyfriend to make himself visible or take some physical form. But the spirit did not respond kindly to Vicky's request. And from that moment on, she couldn't get any communication with that spirit ever again. Even the experienced Ed Warren is stunned by this revelation, and he concludes that Vicky's spirit companion was not a teenage boy at all, but something far more menacing. An incubus. An incubus is a demonic entity. It's a seductive spirit, but it's also a very dangerous spirit. The Warrens explain that there's only one way to rid their home of this malevolent fiend. An exorcism. So the family enlists the services of a priest named Father Rourke. When he arrives, Rourke quickly launches into his exorcism ritual his incantations building to a bold ultimatum. He's saying, I command you to reveal your identity now. Instantly, Sharon Beckford sees something sinister. She shouts out, over there near the fireplace. Standing there is a frightening figure, a strange shadowy beast that looks like the devil himself. Then Father Rourke turns to face the figure. He's saying, you know, in the name of Jesus Christ, I command you to leave. And throws the holy water at it. It instantly just dematerializes. After months of torment, the Beckfords breathe a sigh of relief. Finally free of the demonic force that terrorized their home. And this burnt picture frame on display at the Warren Occult Museum in Monroe, Connecticut, serves as an eerie reminder of a teenage infatuation that grew into a haunting terror. Perched on a natural harbor at the foot of the Canadian mountains, Skagway, Alaska was once the gateway to the 1898 gold rush. And today, tourists can take in that frontier spirit at the Klondike Gold Rush National Historical Park Museum. 
Its collection includes remnants of a tram used to move freight up the steep mountain pass and a dog sled that ferried it across miles of snow. But there is one artifact here that embodies a man who extracted riches through less labor-intensive means. The artifact is about six feet tall. He's wearing a gray suit. He was made of odds and ends that were thrown together. In one hand, the figure raises a glass, and in the other, he clutches a weapon. According to park ranger Bruce Dansby, this is a depiction of a man of dastardly deeds. This mannequin represented one of the most insidious characters of the entire gold rush. Who does this crude effigy immortalize? And how did he earn his infamy? 1880s, Denver, Colorado. The discovery of silver has transformed this frontier city into a full-fledged boomtown. And one man is keenly adept at exploiting this economy, a charismatic entrepreneur named Jefferson Randolph Smith. The impresario has made a name for himself, peddling bars of soap to soot-covered miners on the street. Of course, this soap was no ordinary soap. This soap would get you squeaky clean, and it would do wonderful things like cure baldness. Even more enticing, Smith says it might make you rich. He would take a $20 bill or a $50 bill, and he wraps that in the soap so that everyone can see. Smith explains he's hidden more bills in other bars. And without fail, a customer proclaims that she's discovered one of them. That would motivate them to want to go ahead and buy some of that soap for themselves. Yet no matter how many bars eager customers buy, they walk away with only overpriced soap. They've been scammed. The seemingly lucky patron is actually in the employ of Jefferson Smith. He made lots and lots of money doing this. And that is how he acquired his nickname of Soapy Smith. The smooth operator uses the profits to fund other crooked enterprises. He put this money in fraudulent lottery shops, bogus diamond auctions. He sold stock to non-existent companies. It seems Soapy and his gang of thugs can't be stopped. But then, in 1893, a reform-minded governor named Davis Hanson Waite takes office and runs Soapy out of town. Determined to make a fresh start, the exiled Khan sets his sights on a remote mining town in Alaska called Skagway. Skagway provided an excellent location for Smith. Gold had just been discovered in the Klondike in 1896. There was lots of money, lots of transients. This was his kind of town. In 1898, Soapy reassembles his gang and begins preying on miners just off the boat. They, of course, wanted to contact their loved ones back home to let them know that they had arrived safely. For a hefty fee of $5, Soapy promises to telegraph a message for them anywhere in the U.S. Though the price is steep, it's a cost many homesick miners are willing to pay. But what they didn't realize was that there was no telegraph line leading from Alaska to the lower 48 at that time. Many of Soapy's victims leave town none the wiser. In July 1898, Soapy and his gang catch wind of a lucrative new target, a Canadian prospector named J.D. Stewart. He had done very, very well. He was loaded with gold. He was on his way back to British Columbia. 
Unfortunately, he made the mistake of stopping in Skagway. Soapy directs his Confederates to befriend Stuart and convince him to show off his haul. But as soon as Stuart does, they pounce. The gang members, they began roughing him up, and they, they stole his gold. In the wake of the tussle, Soapy assumes a battered Stuart is too scared to report the crime. But he's wrong. Stuart appeals to officials in a nearby town who demand the gold be returned. But the swindler refuses to give back the gold. As news of the incident spreads, Skagway officials begin to fear that Soapy is sullying the town's reputation. They start to think that, well, maybe Smith has gone just a little too far this time. To determine the conman's fate, they hold a private meeting on July 8th under the protective gaze of gunmen. When he learns of the gathering, an infuriated Soapy crashes the party. He demands to be led into the meeting, and he starts attacking the guards. Moments later, gunshots ring out. When the smoke clears, one guard is fatally wounded. The king of the cons, Soapy Smith, lays dead with a bullet through his heart. The residents of Skagway celebrate the hustler's demise. But over time, tales of his exploits spread, transforming the infamous crook into a local legend. And in the 1930s, this effigy of the swindler is set up at a saloon to greet incoming guests in typical soapy fashion, with a gun and a smile. Now it rests in the collection of the Klondike Gold Rush National Historical Park, a memento of the lawless days of one frontier town, and the con man who once held it in his grip. Wall Street, New York City. These iconic eight blocks are named for the wall that once stretched along them, demarking a 17th century Dutch settlement. Today, it's the boundary of the country's financial sector. Housed inside a former bank is the Museum of American Finance. On display is an antique stock ticker, an early 20th century calculator, and a 1792 treasury bond signed by George Washington. But among these symbols of wealth, one item seems oddly out of place. It's a very unusual object of blue fabric, white trim, a set of buttons, a bow tie. But author Mitch Horowitz asserts that despite its plain appearance, this outfit commemorates an individual who was decades ahead of her time. The woman who wore this dress was at the heart of one of the most unusual financial episodes in American history. Who pioneered this fashion? And how did she become one of the most controversial figures in American business? It's 1868 in Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania. Spiritualism, the belief that the living can communicate with the dead, is sweeping the nation. But for Victoria Claflin Woodhull, communing with the spirit world is simply a way of life. She could make predictions, and she received messages from ghostly spirit guides. Convinced her future lies in the world of high finance, Woodhull and her sister moved to New York. Determined to make it on her own, Woodhull finds work as a spiritual healer in the city's brothels. Soon, she develops a bond with the ladies of the night and spies a unique opportunity for advancement. 
Victoria comes to realize that the clientele in New York's brothels are the same Wall Street barons that she wants to gain entry to as an advisor and spirit medium. Woodhull's reputation as a clairvoyant grows. And soon, she catches the attention of the wealthiest man in the world, noted spiritualist Cornelius Vanderbilt. He freely tells newspaper reporters that he gets financial advice from the spirit world. Vanderbilt invites her to his home to lead a personal seance. Vanderbilt ends up conducting numerous sessions with Victoria Woodhull, and she begins to dispense financial advice to him. In September 1869, Woodhull slips into a trance and proceeds to pass on some very specific information. He's told that he should purchase gold when it's valued at $132 per ounce and sell when the price hits $150. Vanderbilt follows the instructions to a T. And he sells just at the moment he was advised to, and he makes a killing. And just hours later, the price of gold freefalls. And it creates pandemonium and a great deal of tragedy in the financial world. But Vanderbilt walked away with a profit of over a million dollars, an extraordinary sum at the time. Emboldened by her success, Woodhull presses Vanderbilt to fund a daring new venture, a brokerage firm of her own. Vanderbilt agrees, and in February of 1870, the sisters become the first female financiers and brokers in American history. It soon becomes clear that competing in the male-dominated dens of Wall Street will be no easy task. Victoria was determined to show that she could fit in to the more masculine world of high finance. She begins by trading in her Victorian-era frocks for tailored dresses that convey professionalism and strength, like this one on display at the Museum of American Finance. This dress departs radically from the style of the day. It's simple, it's streamlined, it's practical. Woodhull's brokerage gains instant popularity particularly among an entirely new breed of client, women. But many of Wall Street's old-school elite begin to question the spiritualist's methods. There were whispers and rumors that she was getting her financial knowledge from someplace other than the spirit world. So what is the secret to Woodhull's uncannily accurate financial advice? In 1872, the controversial figure resolves to wield her influence on behalf of others. And Victoria decided to use her prominence as a spirit medium and a financier to advocate for women's rights in the broader world. The headstrong Woodhull makes a high-profile move into the political arena. Preaching a message of gender equality and free love, she becomes the first woman to run for president but her aggressive politicking begins to alienate the public, and soon her one-time allies turn on her. Some of the Wall Street financiers who had supported her begin to distance themselves from her radical political platform. Even her trusted ally, Cornelius Vanderbilt, rescinds his support. Woodhull loses the election and her brokerage, and her reputation lay in ruins. But in the wake of her collapse, many are still bemused by the source of her financial insights. It seems they came not from the spirit world, but from the back rooms of brothels. Victoria maintained friendships with the madams at some of New York's most elite 
brothels. And their clientele included high financiers who liked to discuss their plans. It appears Woodhull caught wind of one financier's scheme to manipulate the price of gold and make a killing. She then presented this information to Vanderbilt as advice from beyond the grave. It was this brazen cunning that allowed Woodhull to forge a place for herself in a world from which women were previously barred. And this dress on display at the Museum of American Finance in New York City still serves as a reminder of the strange and scandalous life of a woman who was far ahead of her time. St. Louis, Missouri. The launching point for Lewis and Clark's famous expedition, this Midwestern metropolis was also the site of another groundbreaking event, the 1904 World's Fair. And housed within the walls of the Missouri History Museum, is a vast collection of items from the Grand Exposition. They include plaster fragments from the facades of Expo buildings, a horse-drawn taxi that chauffeured fairgoers, and this exquisite Chinese cloisonné table. But standing alongside these elaborate pieces is an object that barely catches the eye. This item is about the size of a gold dollar. It's octagonal in shape and has a bronze color to it. According to curator Sharon Smith, this token is a testament to a bizarre and excruciating test of human endurance. This is one of the strangest athletic events in Olympic history. To what unforgettable physical feat is this medal linked? And how did it become one of the most infamous contests in sports history? August 1904. St. Louis. Visitors from around the globe are descending on the city to attend the World's Fair. The expo will be capped off by an unprecedented competition. The 1904 Summer Olympic Games. It's the first time that they're in the United States. This is huge. And August 30th marks one of the game's most anticipated contests, the marathon. The marathon dates back to 490 BC in ancient Greece. There was a courier who was running information about the Battle of Marathon between the two cities. According to legend, the messenger reached his destination and conveyed news of victory, then promptly dropped dead from exhaustion. But the fable fails to deter this year's 32 contenders. Under sweltering 90-degree heat, they tow the line. One of the persons favored in the race was a man by the name of Thomas Hicks, who comes out of Cambridge, Massachusetts. Hicks is a veteran of five marathons and looks to be in top form. Yet when the starter pistol fires, a virtually unknown American named Fred Lures surges to the lead. But the runners soon discover that the biggest threat is the nearly 25-mile course lined with steep hills, uneven roads, and a host of unexpected hurdles. Dogs ran onto the road. The people would walk along with them. There were cars. There would be bicyclists. The passing vehicles kick up thick clouds of dust on the unpaved course. Cruelest of all, the runners are desperately thirsty. According to early 20th century sports medicine, water actually impeded performance. So the course's last drinking station is at mile 12. 
For the majority of contenders, the hardships are too much to bear. One by one, runners start to collapse and they start to drop out of the race. Halfway through the contest, the early leader, Fred Lors, is nowhere to be seen and is believed to have quit. But the new frontrunner, 28-year-old Thomas Hicks, is also struggling to forge on. Hicks is really ready to just drop out. Hicks is nearing the home stretch when he gets crushing news. A competitor thought to have dropped out of the race, Fred Lors, has been spotted in the lead. His coaches learn that Fred Lors is going to be the winner. This is devastating news. Their man now has lost the race. Yet second place is still in sight. So Hicks's coaches whip up a potentially devastating energy elixir, a mixture of brandy, egg whites, and strychnine. Strychnine is rat poison. It's pretty deadly. But back in 1904, it was actually used as a stimulant. What we would consider today as doping would not have been illegal. The concoction seems to provide Hicks with enough energy to stagger across the finish line. He literally is being held up by his coaches. This also is perfectly fine by Olympic rules. And they set him down. He collapses. As doctors work to revive the second-place finisher, rumors begin to swirl about the winner, Fred Lors. Witnesses report having seen Lors riding in an automobile in the middle of the race. When pressed by judges, Lors makes a staggering admission. He quit the race back at mile nine. Even though Fred Lors begins the race in front, he quickly starts to experience some stomach cramps and decides that he's going to drop out. And he gets picked up by one of the cars that his coach is in. But just six miles from the finish line, the car broke down, prompting Lors to jog the final stretch. So he enters the stadium on foot to the cheers of the crowd who think that he is the winner of the marathon. Lors insists he simply played along for fun and would have eventually come clean. Unamused Olympic officials disqualify him on the spot. And soon, a dazed Thomas Hicks receives some stunning news. When he comes to, he finds out that he's the winner of the race. Yet for Hicks and the 13 others who completed the course after him, the true victory may have been simply surviving the event. The men who finished the marathon are each given an Olympic participation medal, like this one now on display at the Missouri History Museum. The item remains a testament to one of the most grueling contests in the history of sports and the bizarre lengths some athletes were willing to go to finish it. From high-flying espionage to an explosive accident, a clairvoyant's secret sources to a conman's stunning demise, I'm Don Wildman, and these are the Mysteries at the Museum. Hey, it's Danny Pellegrino from Everything Iconic. Ready to upgrade your style game without blowing your budget? Check out Quince. They've got all the good stuff, shirts and polos, activewear and fine leather goods, all at 50 to 80% less than other high-end brands. And the best part? They're all about safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get that luxury vibe without the luxury price tag. Hit up quince.com slash upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. That's quince.com slash upgrade.
This message comes from BOF sponsor eBay. You'll know real when you get it. It'll say eBay Authenticity Guarantee. And you'll feel it. Maybe it's a head-turning handbag, a watch that says it all, jewellery that makes you look like the gem, or sneakers and streetwear so fresh every step feels fly. eBay gets it. So look for the blue check mark next to that thing you love and be confident that every inch, stitch, sole and logo is checked by experts. With eBay Authenticity Guarantee, you can trust that feeling of real is always in reach. Ensure your next purchase is the real deal. Visit ebay.com for terms. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com pack for free shipping and 365-day returns. Support for this podcast and the following message come from Coriant. Coriant provides wealth management services centered around you. They focus on exceeding your expectations and simplifying your life. Coriant has been helping high achievers just like you enjoy their lives more fully, preserve their wealth, and provide for the people, causes, and communities they care about. As one of the largest integrated fee-only registered investment advisors in the U.S., Coriant has deeply experienced teams in 23 strategic locations. Coriant has extensive knowledge spanning the full spectrum of plan investing, lending, and money management disciplines. Leverage Coriant's exclusive network of experts to craft custom solutions designed to help you reach your financial goals, no matter how complex they may be. Real wealth requires real solutions. For more information, connect with a wealth advisor today at Coriant.com. That's C-O-R-I-E-N-T.com. Coriant.com.